honor to be with you. We're glad that you're here. Um, I wanted to speak to you just for a few moments this morning. Pastor Tom is, a, is away on vacation. I think he spoke to a disciple now this weekend. He may be watching online. We love you. We'll be glad to have you back next week. Look forward to you being here. Um, you know how there are those challenging passages in the Bible? You know, like not just the ones that are difficult to understand, but also like pretty convicting and sometimes even kind of scary. You know, some of those passages like when uh, Jesus would say things like, uh, wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many go through it. But narrow or small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few find it. Or he would say things like, on that day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many miracles? He would say to them, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. Man, scary. I remember being a young boy and oftentimes would hear messages like this or these passages preached and I couldn't help but to sit back there and go, oh Lord, is it me? Are you talking about me? <laughs> and it seems like every time the preacher would preach or give an invitation, I'd find myself praying the prayer over and over, you know, every time. But I don't think it was Jesus's intent and I don't think it's the author, gospel writer John's intent, nor is it my intent this morning to ever make a true born again Christian to doubt their eternal salvation. But there are certain passages, and the one that we're going to look at today is one of these, that are intended to reveal the true nature of God's children, providing assurance to those who uh, are in him, to those who know him, but also providing a warning and perhaps hopefully a conviction to those who, in fact, do not yet know him and desperately need to be saved. Today's text, I hope you'll turn there with me, is found in 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28. And we're going to attempt to get all the way through chapter 3, verse 10. I've entitled the message for this Sunday, The Paternity Test. I read a story this week in Christianity Today about a man who was born into an Anglican family, a priest. His father was an Anglican priest. His mother was a faithful teacher of religion and faithful morals to all of her 19 children. Yeah. It's a lot. He attended Oxford and was ordained to the Anglican ministry. He joined a society founded by his brother that was founded on holy morals, that was founded on these uh, vows they took to lead holy lives, to take communion once a week, to pray every day, even visit the prisons regularly. They would even spend three hours every afternoon studying the Bible, studying devotional materials. It doesn't get much more religious than this. The man sailed from England to Georgia to pastor his first church because he'd heard the devil had went down there. <laughs> but it failed miserably. He tried, to, he tried to enforce the same vows that he had on a society back in England on these people in Georgia, and they simply rebelled. Even the lady that he was courting, as they called it at the time, left him and married another man. It's terrible. He sails back to England And he's having a conversation with a man named Peter Bolier, after which he kind of concluded that maybe perhaps I lack true saving faith. One night he uh, was, uh, he still, he said he continued to try to be good, but remained frustrated. He said, I was indeed fighting continually, but not conquering. I fell and rose and fell again. One night on May 24, 1738, 
he had an experience that forever changed everything. He recorded in his journal, I'll read to you. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This man went on to be a pretty prominent leader in the church. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name, John Wesley. Now, if a man like John Wesley, who grew up his entire life in the church around the things of God, could spend his whole life and not know that he lacked true saving faith, then how in the world can we, in fact, know that we have it? Today, I present to you the paternity test. So a paternity test is a DNA test, uses DNA, uses the genetic makeup of an individual to compare a child's DNA genetic makeup to that of their would-be biological father. Because of the advancements in science and technology, uh, these tests are pretty accurate. There really can be no discrepancy when dealing with DNA. Either the child's DNA matches that of the man, or in fact, the man is not his biological father. Uh, When I was growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, some of you may remember some of these talk shows kind of made famous over these DNA tests. And I'm not going to mention any of them to give them any credibility or advertisement, but I remember coming home and it was so suspenseful and it was crazy. They would lead up and be like, you are the father. And it would be like, ah. (laughs) And from this simile comes the spiritual paternity test, if you will, 1 John. All throughout 1 John, we see John Uh, repeating these presentation of these three tests or these three indicators as Pastor Tom has been calling them uh, that reveal a true identity of a Christian, a child of God. The first is the doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus? What you believe about Jesus really matters. Do you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the very Son of God, born of a virgin, come to live a spotless, sinless life and offer that life on Calvary's cross for you and for your salvation that he rose from the dead and is seated on high at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his children. The doctrinal test. The second is the social test or the love test. Does your love for God create a love for others? Do you love your brothers? The Bible says, John says just a few chapters before that if you claim to walk in light and you hate your brother, then you're still living in darkness. You lie. Love. Tom's going to talk a little bit about that in the passage following next week. Looking forward to that. The third is the moral test. Does the fact that God has saved you and given you his Holy Spirit, has that changed anything about your life, anything about the way that you live? That's what we're going to look at here today. But before we get too far, I want to again ensure you that John is not trying to make you doubt your salvation, but to reveal to you the very nature of it. In the very crescendo of his letters in chapter 5, he writes, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John Stott puts it this way. He says, John's argument is double-edged. If he seeks to bring believers to the knowledge that they have eternal life, he is equally at pains to show that unbelievers have not received life. His purpose is to destroy the false assurance of the counterfeit as well as to confirm the righteousness of the genuine. At that, let's dive right in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. I hope you will follow along with me. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, 
we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Here you can see John's love for God's people continue to shine bright. It's all throughout this letter. He again here encourages believers, just as he did in the previous verse, verse 27, to remain in him or to continue in him, to persevere in the faith, to hold fast to your profession of Jesus is Lord. These words echo the very words of Jesus that, he, that John records in his gospel as well, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit of itself. It must remain in me, must remain in the vine. This brings us to point number one in our message today. God's children have placed their full confidence in Jesus. God's children have placed their full confidence in Jesus. This goes back to the doctrinal test. Do you believe without a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing apart from Jesus that can make you right before an eternal holy God? Have you placed your full trust and faith in him? Is your confidence in him? Unfortunately, in today's society, many of the people that I know and even some that I grew up with, friends that I have back home, man, there's so much of kind of this uh, idea that that it's okay to like think Jesus's writings and his teachings were like good for life or like they were good moral teachings or, you know, that he was a good person or a good teacher, but most certainly not the son of God, not risen from the dead, not performing all these miracles, and it's, it's a lie without the true foundation of Christ as Savior and Lord, as the Son of God, you do not have saving faith. The Bible says that if you know the Son, you know the Father. But if you have not the Son, you have not the Father. The Bible tells us that in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I believe there are three things that help us as believers today to have confidence, to help build our confidence. The first is Jesus Right, The more we know him, to know him and to walk with him, the longer that we walk with him, the more confident that we are as God's children, the more free we feel to come before him with even our struggles and our shortcomings and our faults and our failures. The second is active love, both from God to us and from us to other people. Love is the very foundation of God. The Bible says God is love. It's that we love not in just what we say, but in the way that we live our lives, the way we treat others, the way we serve the church, the way that we serve the Lord. And thirdly, obedience. We honor God by following his commands, by believing in his son, by trying to live out his word. Here John is referring to Jesus' second coming, uh, and we all want to be confident and unashamed before him when we see him face to face. Uh, It's such a privilege this week, Pastor Tom and I got to sit down and talk a little bit about this message, and it's a very difficult, challenging uh, text. I I remember thinking back to when he uh, started. Remember, he had everybody read 1 John. He said, read it every week, read it every week. So I remember going and reading and reading through it, and I remember coming back to him and be like, bro, I can't wait to see how you handle chapter (laughs) 3. It wasn't supposed to fall this way, but there was one message that didn't quite get through as far as he wanted, so it kind of fell this way, so here we are. But he gave me this illustration, and I think it comes from uh, Alistair Begg. He talks about this teacher that leaves his classroom to go and meet with the principal. And he leaves the classroom with an assignment, some work, and says, hey, you're going to be, I'm going to test you on this when I return. There are some diligent students who immediately right away begin working on the assignment, taking the teacher at their word and working diligently to get through the assignment, to study, to be sure they're prepared. Other students are somewhat hesitant and they spend a little time talking and goofing off and enjoying some free time, but eventually they think, well, the teacher's coming, I better get with it and they get busy. But still there are other students who just goof off, 
cut up the whole time. They really don't believe the teacher's probably going to make it back by the end of the class period. And they might even post some lookouts, you know, at the doors and windows to be looking to see if the teacher's coming so they can hurry and scuttle and look busy and hope maybe the teacher won't really give us a test. Let me ask you, which one of these students are going to be confident and unashamed when the teacher returns? Most definitely those who are diligent, did the work, prepared, followed the teacher's word. Most likely many of those who were somewhat hesitant, but they got busy. They wanted to get through the assignment. They wanted to do the work. But very unlikely any of the um, slackers, if you will, uh, will be very confident and unashamed when the teacher walks in and says, pop quiz. Let me ask you, which one of these students do you most relate with? I know for me personally, when I was in school, most likely I would either be number two or number three. But dear friends, the teacher is coming. And may he find us diligent and faithful at his return, seeking to fulfill our assignment in the great commission of sharing his love and the truth of his coming with others. Let's look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Notice here that doing what is right comes from our knowing that he is righteous. Our ability to do what is right, to do what is right comes not from our own righteousness, but comes from his. It's his righteousness imparted to us through Christ that we have an opportunity to be made right before God. Paul tells us in Romans, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known or has been revealed or has been made available. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God has made this righteousness available to us and this righteousness is what enables us to go and do the right things. Jesus tells this parable of a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son. He says, the wedding banquet is ready but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go out into the street corners and invite anyone you find. The servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king arrives, he comes in to see the guests, and he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. He said, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, not confident, and not unashamed. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very scary. It was often the custom for a host to provide these garments for uh, people attending these banquets they would come. And it was especially necessary here in this parable because what? The king had told him, hey, go out and get everybody off the street. They didn't really have time to go and go home and get ready or get prepared. They were literally coming right off the street. So the king would have prepared these garments to have them available to them. And the failure of the man to clothe himself with a wedding garment was an insult to the king who had made him available, who had invited him and made these garments available to them. God has made his righteousness available to us through Christ, and he has invited us in. But we will not enter into his banquet without clothing ourselves in his righteousness that he has provided for us at a great cost to himself. Look at um, how he uses the next verse here. In uh, the next part of the, the verse here, he says, everyone who does what is right has been born of God. 
This is the first time in this letter that we see John using this type of language. We see him say things about our relationship with God, like we write to you that we may know we are in him, that we may know him, or that we may live in him. But here for the first time, he uses born of him. Where else do we see this kind of language? You remember? Yeah, John's gospel. In chapter three, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at night, and he tells Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is first born again. I love this. Jesus, if you look, following this conversation with Nicodemus, just a few verses later, he's going to give Nicodemus, he's going to give us one of the most recognizable verses in all of Scripture. You know it. John 3, 16. Following the, you must be born again, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here, following the statement about being born again, from 1 John, look what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And just to show you, dear Christian, that it is not his intent for a born-again child to doubt their standing with God, because what he's about to say in the following verses is going to get difficult. It's going to get challenging. It's going to get tough. Look what he says. And that is what we are. He's reminding him how beautiful and how great. I hope we never get over God's love that he took a sinful, wretched people who had rebelled against him, who was separated from him. He adopted them into his family and gave us his name. He gave us his family's name. And so I believe adoption is one of the most beautiful images of God's love that we see here in the world today. I know many friends of mine have, have adopted uh, children have brought them into their family, loved them and cared for them like their own. My wife and I, we've talked about this. We've talked about potentially adopting a child one day, especially being a youth pastor. You have a heart for those people that are young and maybe get pregnant and you see a great need for someone to love and care for a small child. The Greek word you just hear and how great is the love the Father's lavished on us. Some of your translations might say, what manner of love is this? that the Father has lavished his love on us. It's the exact same word used in Matthew when Jesus, if you remember, he's asleep in the bottom of the boat and the disciples come and wake him up and they're like, hey, Lord, don't you care that we're about to perish? And he calms the waves. He commands the waves and the wind to stop and it ceases. And the disciples are astonished and it says, what manner of man is this that the wind and waves obey him? The word always implies astonishment. It's literally translated of what country? Or from what world is this love? Or from what country or from what world is this man? Obviously, the love of God and the person of God, Jesus, is so foreign to this world and its systems and the love that this world has to offer that John reminds us next of what Jesus said right after this. He says, the reason the world does not know us is what? That it did not know him. The world offers love that says, I will love you as long as you have something to offer me. The love of God says, I love you so much that I will offer everything that is dear to me that you might experience my love and my presence. The world's love says, I will love you as long as I approve of you. But God's love says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. The world's love is always conditional and temporary, but the great love our heavenly father has lavished on us is eternal and unconditional. He loves you. Verse two, that's why he says next, dear friends, now we are children of God. What a great truth. What a great promise to you today, Christian. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
What great news it is that we are adopted children of God. This is a great promise. This is something you can stand on, a foundation you can believe on. And yet the good news for Christian, the great peace and joy that we have and hope for our lives is that the best is still yet to come. While in this life we experience God's love and we experience the closeness and fellowship that comes through his Holy Spirit, through relationship with him, we get to experience his love through fellowship with the believers, through gathering together in places of worship and through small groups and Sunday schools and things of that nature. We experience family love together. But the good news for you and for I is there's coming a day where we're going to be made like him, where we're going to take on an eternal, everlasting body. Now, I'm not sure uh, exactly what this is going to look like. Right? I'm not sure exactly what we're going to look like. I've often had questions. Maybe you have uh, had questions. But Christ's resurrection is one of the things that separates him from all other world religions. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead, is, he's the only religious leader to ever come back from the dead. Right? You go to the tomb of Muhammad, he's still laying there. Right? You go to the tomb of the Buddha, he's, he's still in there. But you can't go where Jesus is. There are some places in uh, Jerusalem where they say that he was, they think he was potentially buried, but he's not there. He's alive. And that is what gives us this great hope. And we gather some evidence from his resurrected body that may potentially give us an idea of maybe what it's like. We'll see. Jesus had a physical appearance, right? They recognized him whenever he allowed people to recognize him. He had an appearance that was somewhat recognizable, okay? His resurrected body was not bound by the laws of like, matter. I mean, he like walked through walls and would like disappear and then reappear. Like it's, it's, it's wild. Like maybe this produces more questions than answers, you know, like what will we look like? How old will we look? When do we get our new body? What do we look like? What's our body like between death and whenever we get our new body? The truth is I absolutely am not sure. I have some hunches though, and I would reserve those for maybe some private conversations but I'll read one passage and allow but a moment of um, diversion that perhaps will help. The Bible says there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Verse three. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The word hope here doesn't have the same uh, meaning as we oftentimes think of hope as in like, I hope the weather's nice next week or, you know, I sure hope the Bearcats win on Wednesday. Uh, it's kind of like a firm foundation or it's an assurance of something that's not yet fulfilled. It's translated more like a hope on something rather than like a hope in something. The hope for the child of God rests on the foundation that we're God's children and that one day we're gonna see him again, that one day he's coming again. This type of hope produces a desire to be pure because he's pure. And we know that one day we're gonna be made like him. That's why one reason I think Jesus kind of taught us to pray. My father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Which brings us to point number two, 
God's children will seek to resemble him in love and in purity. I know our right standing with God is based upon his righteousness and not our own, but that doesn't mean that we like have no responsibility to live holy lives or to seek after moral purity or to seek after you know, a pure heart or to, to guard ourselves, to, um, to hold ourselves accountable to the things that we see with our eyes, the things that we say with our mouths, the things that we allow into our lives. Uh, the Bible says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Our love for him makes us want to be like him. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, but now you must rid yourselves of all these things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to each other since you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Man, that's challenging, right? It's convicting because the truth is for all of us in this room out of that whole list, we've probably all struggled with something in that list this week. And so it's a constant battle. It's a constant uh, fight to, to, fight for our, uh, to fight for our inward purity, to fight to be more like him, to fight to be holy as he is holy. Look at verse four. Verses four and five. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Here we see one of the best definitions for sin, I think in in the whole Bible. We see it says sin is lawlessness. It's like a defiant violation, like a intentional violation of God's moral law. It's the assertion of putting ourselves against God's like revealed way. It's saying that our selfishness is more important than like the service of God. We're all guilty. I'm guilty of this. We see here in verse five that he appeared that he might take away our sins. So when we choose to sin, we're literally going against the very purpose for when Christ first appeared. He came to give us freedom from our sin, not freedom to sin. For so long in my life, I kind of got this wrong. You know, I, I, you focus so much on God's grace and his mercy and his love. And you think, man, I'm so thankful I'm free in Christ. And you kind of like give yourself a free pass like on a lot of things. But God, Jesus didn't come just so that he would free us from the penalty of sin. But he wants to free you from the power of sin over your life. Verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, I want to be careful here because, like I said earlier, it's not John's purpose, nor my own today, that a Christian would ever doubt their salvation. And on the surface here, it kind of appears as though the Bible is saying that no true child of God will commit sin. And you can see why that's scary. That would make all of us kind of doubt. All of us would be like, oh, we're all in that kind of boat. But we know from chapter one that John wrote, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. And he said, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our hearts. So if it's true that we're not supposed to ever sin as a Christian and yet never admit that we never sin, like that would kind of be a false witness. If both were true, we would be committing a false witness. And we know that bearing false witness is a sin which is in direct opposition to the very character and nature of God. It cannot be this way. It cannot be so. So let's look at verse 6 again. It says, no one who lives in him 
keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. C.I. Schofield uh, gives us uh, great insight. He says, here the Greek verb has the force of a continuous present tense and thus denotes a person's habitual attitude towards sin as expressed in his or her practice or non-practice of it. John's not speaking of a state of perfection in which it's impossible for a Christian to sin, but he's stressing the fact that a Christian cannot keep on practicing sin because he is born of God. This brings us to our third and final point. God's children cannot be comfortable continuing in a lifestyle of sin. God's children cannot be comfortable continuing in a lifestyle of sin. Let's look at the final four verses here, verse 7 through verse 10. Dear children, you can almost hear the love and tenderness in John's voice here, not wanting to be harsh or make someone doubt something that they most certainly have, but also not wanting to make someone be self-deceived into believing something they have, something that they in fact do not have. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, And who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. John Stott has a great commentary on the book of 1 John. He says it this way. He says, a child exhibits the parent's character because they share the parent's nature. A person's righteousness is the evidence of his new birth, not the cause or the condition of it. John shows that righteousness, not knowledge, is the principal mark of the regenerate. Let me illustrate it another way. We talked about adoption. When a set of parents adopt a child as their own and they love the child and care for the child like it's their very own, that child legally becomes a part of the family. It's a decision that the parents make and the child takes the same status as their very own children would have, even if they didn't have any. It's legal status as part of the family. Now let's say this child is an older child. Let's say They've lived a while, eight or 10 years old, something like that. While this child has been legally and rightfully declared as a member of the family, it may take years and years and years for the child to overcome their past raising or any potential trauma they've experienced in their younger years. And sometimes they never fully 100% heal. Just because this child may not look or act like the rest of the members of the family for a long time does not take away their legal status or make them any less part of the family. We have been adopted into God's family. The hope is that over time, because of the love and nurture of the child's adoptive family, the child's attitude and behavior will begin to change. We'll begin to see, maybe not completely, but the child will kind of take on the new nature, the new character, the new habits that would look more like their adopted family. This is why, this is the hope for which we hope for in adoption. Yes, we are adopted into God's family. We are given the legal status, the same as his son, Jesus. The difference from this and from human adoption is that God has actually given us spiritually his seed within us at our adoption. The Holy Spirit has come. He's placed within us to give us that 
that his seed, that we, might, uh, that we might eventually begin to look more and more like him, that our lives would be transformed more and more into his image, into his nature, into his character. This is why a child of God cannot continue to live in a constant state of sin, cannot live forever without having any sign of holiness or repentance or, or not having any sign of righteousness because the very Holy Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. The Bible says that you will know a tree by its fruit. You plant an apple tree and you expect, an apple seed rather, and you expect an apple tree to grow. Now, just because it takes at least eight years or longer before the apple tree will ever produce any kind of fruit that resembles an apple, it's still an apple tree. And you today, today, may be wrestling with uh, some trauma from your past. You might be struggling with some habitual sin or battling a terribly strong old nature that seems pretty challenging and difficult to break. You may believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. You may have faith that he has lived and died for you and risen from the dead. You may have a genuine love for God and for his people and for the church, but you just can't seem to break through. Don't be discouraged, dear child of God. What God has planted in you he will see it to fruition. Be confident in this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Imagine planting a, um, a daffodil, right? Like a, uh, what do they call those things? Like a buttercup, right? Underneath a, a big concrete slab in the dirt. Now that little daffodil underneath that big slab of concrete having nowhere to sprout is most likely gonna choke out and die. But imagine taking the acorn of a mighty oak tree and planting it in the dirt underneath that same slab of concrete. What's gonna happen? Eventually, over time, the oak tree is gonna take root. It's gonna spring forth. And what's gonna happen to that concrete? It's gonna begin to crack, yeah. It's gonna begin to break. You're gonna see the power and the might of that oak tree break through that slab of concrete. The oak tree's coming. It's been planted. Dear friends, the Holy Spirit has been planted in you, O Christian, and eventually God is going to see that to fruition. At some point, if you are a child of God, something, his glory, his presence, his love, those things are gonna break those places in our lives and it will shine through. You might feel buried today in your relationship with God, but this is why he tells us and John reminds us to remain in him, to continue in him, because you're not buried, but the Holy Spirit is planted within you and eventually the seed of God will break through into your life. So here we see the threefold paternity test, the doctrine test. What do you believe about Jesus? It's important. If you do not believe that Jesus is the son of God, dear friends, you do not have a saving faith according to the scripture. The social test, the love test. Do you love God? Do you love others? Does your life marked with God's love? And the moral test, do you seek to honor him? Anyone continuing in sin without any conviction or sign of remorse or repentance, there can only be one of two things that can be true. Either one, you've so quenched the Holy Spirit in your life to the point that you no longer sense his nudgings and you've broken your fellowship with God. For the born again child of God, eventually this will always produce what the Bible calls a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. As God's children, 
He will not allow us to continue. That's why it's, we can't really be comfortable in a lifestyle of sin because the Holy Spirit is there and he's at work and he's convicting, he's convicting. And we've either ignored it to the point that where we've broken our fellowship and we no longer sense him, but eventually we're his children. He will call us home. He will bring us and draw us to himself. We will have this godly sorrow over our sin that will lead to repentance, that will lead to a repentant heart. The Bible says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Or perhaps the second is true. And you may not, in fact, be born again. You could be like John Wesley who, you know, maybe trusted in his own righteousness or just grew up around the things of God. Lacking true saving faith and you do not have the Holy Spirit of God within you. Thus revealing your true nature as all of us were before we came to Christ. A sinner. Sinners are going to sin. That's what we do. This only produces a worldly sorrow that leads to death. That's the difference. If that's you, you need to be saved today. You need to repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. God's only begotten son. He says that he is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness for the salvation of our soul. We pray and we ask God to forgive us. We confess that we're a sinner. We admit that we are sinful. We place our faith and trust and hope in what he did to, to remedy that in sending his son, Jesus, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We ask him to place his Holy Spirit within us, to grant us himself, the seed of God, that we might have the power to overcome and be spiritually born again. Now, I don't know where you are in the room today. We come from so many different walks of life, so many different circumstances. I hope this finds you encouraged, dear Christian, encouraged that you are a child of God, that God desperately loves you so much that he has shown you his love. He's lavished his love on you that is unconditional, that is not, uh, that is not dependent necessarily on the things that you've done in your life. He comes, you can come as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to be made more and more into the likeness of his image. So the challenge for you is that you might, you might hold yourself accountable, that you might uh, purify yourself from the inward man the Bible talks about. I think that for so many, it's so easy to get so busy and caught up with the stresses of everyday life and the responsibilities that we always have that we just kind of get used to the way things are. But if we want to have a close, intimate relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to constantly be of elaborating, of evaluating our lives against the truth of his word, against the power of his spirit to say, God, is there something in me that's displeasing to you? Is there something I've allowed to be a part of my life that is not what your plan and intent is for my life? And you do what you can to starve it out, to drive it out. Maybe you're here today and you would say, man, when you look at these tests, I really don't, really don't line up. I don't really feel like I have that assurance. Then dear friends, today can be the day of salvation for you. I pray that in a few moments you're gonna ask God, you're gonna pray in the best way that you know how to ask for his forgiveness, to seek for his presence, to seek for his Holy Spirit, that you too may become a child of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, it brings encouragement, but it also brings conviction. So Lord, I pray for myself and for those of us in this room that, oh God, we're never satisfied with the victories of yesterday in our lives. God, that we don't become satisfied with just a um, complacent, I will get to it when we can, relationship with you. But God, that you would develop within us, that you would strengthen within us a hunger 
and a desire for your righteousness. God, a desire to be more like you that we might demonstrate to the world who you really are. God, that your power may go forth, that the power of your love and your Holy Spirit would go forth in a world that desperately needs it right now. God, use us. It's always your intent to use the church, to use your children for the assignment you've given us. May we be found diligent, faithful this week, moment by moment, day by day. I pray you grant victory over our sin. I pray you grant victory and breakthrough over those difficult, hard circumstances of our lives. For those who are experiencing pain or trauma or loss, God, I pray for your Holy Spirit. God, for those dealing with maybe children that are difficult or challenging, God, I pray for your encouragement. I pray that they just get an extra dose of your love, Lord, that they know they're your children filled with your presence, that they might demonstrate your grace and love in a way that their children's lives will be transformed and changed and molded. Help me as a dad to be more like you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our time and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.